Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. Good evening, saints. Great to be with you on this Saturday night. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to make your way to Matthew chapter 19. And uh, we are going through the Anchored in the Word, reading two years through God's Word. Every year in those two years, we go through the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs, but we take two years through the Old Testament. And whatever passage we choose to speak upon, the one here this evening, is God's design for marriage from Matthew chapter 19. And I think now because of the incredible crisis of sanity uh, in America, we should preach this message every like three months or something like that, because you never know when the woke virus is going to try to come through the door and take things over. But the beautiful thing about this passage and God's design for marriage, and if you're here single over the years doing marriage series and seminars and sometimes even doing a number of Sundays in a row about the family, sometimes the single people would really get bummed out. And so as soon as I said the marriage thing, some of your single hearts just sank like, oh, really? I could be watching American Idol tonight and here I am gonna be talking about marriage and stuff. But the reality is, is this passage also talks about the single life and we're gonna talk about that. Because the beauty of God in our relationship with him is God is a relational God and he has created us to have relationships with one another. And as we have these relationships with one another, our lives are deepened and enriched by fellowship with one another. And there is no relationship more intimate than obviously that of marriage. If you think about it, every other relationship does not have the physical component which separates by light years the husband and wife relationship by God's design to actual friendships of any sort, shape, or form. Even your family, your, your mom and your dad, this whole raising of kids is this transitional thing where we're raising them, we bring them into the world by God's grace, we raise them up and do the best they can and hopefully they won't have to have too much therapy when we're done with them. And you know, we, we send them out in the world, but it's a transitional relationship. But this one is one of permanence. And by that I mean God's design is for permanence as far as the lifetime goes. We know that we are going to step into heaven, and if our spouses know the Lord, we're going to spend eternity in heaven. But Jesus told us there is no marriage in heaven, which is very disappointing if you have an LDS background, right? And if you have a bad marriage, it's really good news for your perspective that you're not going to be married for eternity. But the beauty is there's no sin in heaven, so all the failure that muddies up the waters in our desire to actually have meaningful relationships. I mean, that's your heart's desire, right? But in the midst of this question that is given to Jesus about divorce, Jesus actually uses it to have a teaching moment about marriage and God's original design. So when you lose your way, you always have to go back to the basics. I remember being five years old and my older brother, Scotty, I was sitting on a rock Castle Ford, Idaho, next to Deep Creek, which is this creek we lived on. And him sitting me down at the age of five and explaining to me that my parents were getting a divorce. And dad hadn't been around the last couple of years, pretty hit and miss because they were separated, things were strained. I was young and so I didn't really know what was going on. My older three siblings knew much more. And I remember the day that my brother said, mom and dad are getting a divorce. Now this devastated my older three siblings. But with my youthfulness and also the distance that my dad had become in the last couple of years when my memory was really kicking in, it had very little effect on me. All three of my older siblings were crying and very upset. And they told me, and I just shrugged my shoulders and said, well, pop's not around very much anyway. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just kind of the thing. And, but as you go through life, you know, my mom was married four times, my dad was married three times, so there's seven marriages between the two of them. So we have his and hers and, you know, all the steps and various things that go on. And so we, uh, 
we, we put the, the dis in dysfunction from our family. On the opposite side of that, Tammy and I getting married 36 years ago and, and moving forward in God's grace, having no example of godly marriages, not growing up in the church, not having any direction from God's word until we got saved as young adults, came to Christ, fell in love, and got married. And only in God's grace and God's plan and God's design is the only way I'd work. I want you to know that uh, I would be nothing but a dumpster fire, like all of my family, that doesn't know Jesus. My one cousin has eight kids strung out among all kinds of women, right? He didn't marry most of them, but it's like, wow, that one looks like my cousin. You just see him on the street. Wow, he's, got, he's getting around. That's what's happening. But what's God's design? What's his plan? Let's pray that the Lord speaks to our hearts right now. Father, we just ask that in your grace, you know the situation of every single person here. You know the pain, you know the sorrow, you know the joy, you know the happiness, you know the satisfaction. And Lord, we just submit to you right now that your spirit would do something special in this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. As we pick it up in verses one and two, it's really important we wanna see the healing ministry because some of us are gonna need some healing at the end of this message. Verse one, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. Jesus' ministry is he's moving and ministering, moving and ministering, and in that context, these Pharisees show up, and Jesus is doing beautiful things, fulfilling his Father's will, but they show up, and here they're always looking for the controversial thing. And there's nothing more controversial, or shall I even say painful. As we talk about the subject of divorce here, statistically, you know, half of the people in the room have been divorced and remarried, maybe a number of times. And so you might be on your second marriage, you might be on your third marriage, you might be on your fourth marriage like my mom. You might be on my mom's, uh, one of her best friends that went on to her 10th marriage. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration. Jesus ministered to people even as he did the woman at the well. And as he was trying to get to the heart of the matter, he said, hey, why don't you go get your husband? You see, Jesus is moving and ministering, but he comes across this Samaritan. So why don't you go get your husband? She says, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacked up with right now, he's not your husband. You've got to get that in the Greek. It's a loose paraphrase right there. But uh, the guy is the, you know, she's living with. And, Jesus, and, and she responded to Jesus and said, I perceive that you're a prophet. I would too. Somebody's reading your mail like that, right? They know how many husbands you've had. They know, you know it's Bill, it's Bob, it's George, it's... You even know the, the order for Jesus. Jesus was trying to get to the heart of the matter about living water. And that's what she really needed. And that's what you and I really need to make these things work. The question comes from the Pharisees as we see the marriage ministry, and that's Jesus is going to talk about the big picture design and what God had a, a meaning and purpose behind it. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And you must understand the context of that day, first century uh, Jerusalem, Israel. There were two well-known rabbis. Hillel was the very liberal individual that taught that uh, if there was any uncleanness in your wife, and we'll get to that passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one, but if there's any uncleanness in your wife, a man can divorce his wife or anything. So he interpreted that quite broadly and liberally and was quite loved by the community, right? Because if you burnt the toast, that's uncleanness. If he saw a woman that was more beautiful than your wife, that's uncleanness. If she put too much salt on your eggs in the morning, that's uncleanness. Like you could literally make up anything to divorce your wife. And so divorce was rampant in first century Israel. But there was also Rabbi Shammai, who is, Rabbi Shammai was the conservative rabbi that believed that uncleanness simply meant you were sexually unfaithful to your spouse. That was the real grounds for divorce. And Jesus is going to support that view. But imagine you're these religious leaders, and if you're, if you're a fallen sinful person, and you go through marital conflict 
which school of thought would you like to lean towards? Right? For any and all reasons, you can get a divorce? Well, that sounds easy. The conservative perspective, which is a biblical perspective, which is the right perspective, according to Jesus' commentary on the scriptures, which obviously I think Jesus is the best commentator on the scriptures, don't you think? That he supports that perspective, which makes marriage much, much more challenging, much, much more difficult for people to work it through all the hard stuff. Rodney Dangerfield, that guy long gone, uh, the comedian said, my wife and I were very happy for 20 years, and then we met each other. <laughs> Some of you are a little delayed on that, a little bit slow on this Saturday night. But now Jesus is going to talk about this marriage ministry. He's going to teach, and he takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, and verse, also chapter 1 of Genesis and it says, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. Let's go back to verse 4. So we go back to verse 4. Look at, I've put to the right, just my own thoughts about the authority that Jesus speaks since him and the Father and the Spirit, the triune God, created our universe, created man and woman, saw that Adam was lonely in the garden, which was the first answer to solve the loneliness was to present Adam with a wife. There might be that loneliness in some of your hearts, some of you are single, and you're looking for that marital bliss of a soulmate and somebody that can comfort you. And that's what Adam was looking for as he was naming all the animals in the animal kingdom. But there was no female version of him. So God was an awakening and seeing the male-female aspect of things and to awaken his need and to see his own need so that God could fulfill that need. The first thing we see about authority is the authority of Scripture in verse 4. It says, have you not read? The Bible claims to be the authoritative, inerrant, perfect word of God. And this is the declaration that we see all the way through the Scriptures about God's word. So the authority of Scripture is going to speak to this issue of God's design about marriage. There's... No one more authoritative than the creator himself, as we see the authority of the creator, that he made them. He fashioned them. It says that of Adam, he made him out of the dirt, and he breathed life into him. He formed him and shaped him. And Eve was unique because she actually came out of Adam as the Lord put him to sleep and took her out of his side and fashioned her and then he wakes up and says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He recognized in her that companion that was missing in the rest of the created world. So the authority of the scriptures, the authority of the creator, the authority of origins at the beginning. You always go back to the beginning. Genesis means beginning. And so how do we, how do we get so warped and twisted in this day and age where people can't even get it right. The authority of gender. He made them male and female, and they've been male and female ever since. Right? Now, oftentimes when you talked about this gender issue, this, the younger generation will love to throw up the very, very, very rare condition of a hermaphrodite. A hermaphrodite has the tissue, reproductive tissue, of testicles or ovaries. They have a little bit of that tissue, and they would be the, I mean, truly, they're an individual that you're like, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I got tissue, you can go either way. How's this gonna go? Are we gonna flip a coin now? Or are we going to, but there's usually a dominant genitalia. And there's only, I mean, this is back in 1991, there was only 500 documented cases of this situation in all the world. 
yet this is the one that they want to take. I would say the majority. Let's just set the hermaphrodite, which is a special situation. Victor Marks, who was just here, said on his podcast, he had a hermaphrodite on, and that person, you know, had the choice of which direction they're going to go with their gender, which is kind of a, I mean, mind-blowing birth defect. But they're truly... Um, the only people that could choose which direction they wanted to go. They don't have to go to a, a doctor, so to speak. Now, if there's the authority of Scripture, he's the creator, he's the originator, he uh, gives us the authority on gender, and we have to talk about this stuff, you guys, because, you know, it's just ridiculous now what people are saying about gender, about bathrooms. I mean, ladies, how many of you want a hairy-legged man coming into your bathroom? How many of you fathers want your 11-year-old at a middle school to have to share a bathroom with another boy at that age group? Verse 5 says, the authority of design for this reason. A marriage is a, God has a reason and a purpose of his design. He's created us in a beautiful way. And all this stuff, like if you're just slogging through life and you lose sight of all this, you lose sight of the purpose and the meaning that is behind our relationship, to have this close, intimate relationship that Ephesians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle says, it is a picture of the intimacy of the Lord Jesus with his church. The marriage is the highest illustration in this universe that points to a loving relationship, a, a groom and a bride, a husband and a wife, to reflect their loving relationship between the Lord Jesus and his bride, the church. There is the initiation, the authority, a man, he's gonna be the one that uh, leaves his father and mother, the authority of priority in relational issues. We leave a mom and dad behind. Now this is a little painful for us, moms and dads. We poured all of our life, most of our money, into our children, and then they just move out one day and say, adios. You hear from them eight months later when they need money at, high, uh, at college, right? Uh, or when they wanna move back in when they're 31 and their girlfriend kicked them out. So all of these things the Lord is laying out before us to be joined to his wife, the authority of relationship, and the two shall become one flesh, the authority of sexuality God designed a male and a female body, to function perfectly in an anatomical way for their anatomy to blend together in a sexual union in a way that is a truly mind-blowing experience. All of this being said, how much of the world, if you, ladies, you go get your hair done at the beauty salon and your hairdresser is not a Christian, <laughs> and, uh, my, uh, having some friends, they say, man, when you go in the beauty shop and all the girls in there, the ma their main topic is talking trash about their husbands. And they're giving them advice, like, you should just divorce his rear end. You should do this. You should do that. And so out there in the world, you're not going to hear any of this stuff as far as the Lord instructing us in this relational dynamic. In verse 6, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh the authority of oneness. The Lord says that two people blend together, and doctors are even studying now how there's a shared immune system between the husband and the wife, that everything that you're sharing, you're sharing uh, you know, everything from saliva to other bodily fluids with one another, and you are, you're, as you're going through your life, the oneness is at many levels, but the, the, the basic declaration of one flesh is sexual intimacy, that in that act, you are connected as one person. But there's also, in that act, there is a spiritual, there is an emotional, and there is a physical expression that begins to take place in two people's lives. And through the years, it's really scary, as people get into their 60s and 70s, how they even start looking like each other. It's an amazing thing, right? <laughs> and you can, you just know what's up with each other. Even if it's the slightest disturbance, other people that don't know your spouse as well as you do, you know right now something's going on with them, but you're in a public place, so you get in the car, after you leave the event, you're like, love, you all right? Nobody else could even tell, could tell that something was wrong. But there's this shared emotional intuitiveness. One day, and this is when we were probably in our 30s, my son's about 11, and 
Tammy walks into the room. She walked in the room and she was just thinking about how she was gonna ask me something. And somehow I knew intuitively what she was gonna ask. So I answered her and she nodded her head like that and she left. She came into the room with a question, never said a word, and then nodded in an acknowledgement and left. And my 11-year-old son watched the whole thing and he goes, whoa, when I get married, I hope I can have that no word communication. Just whatever happened just now, I don't even know what happened. <laughs> it was just how, you know, you, you sense one another. And so as all these things come together in this beautiful thing and that we take for granted and oftentimes just throw under the bus and discard like it has no value. And yet this is the value that God places upon it. This is the design that the Lord Jesus says is here. And so the authority of vows for it says, you shall be joined, uh, excuse me, therefore God has joined together what God has joined together, let not man separate. Literally, it means that you're glued together. What God has glued together, like super glue. If you glue two pieces of paper together, and now they're glued together, you can take them apart, but as you take them apart, they will be shredded. That's why the painfulness that comes when we get to this subject of divorce, the next verse, is so brutal because that's why the Lord says in Malachi chapter two that the Lord God hates divorce because it covers one's garments with violence. It doesn't mean that uh, it's a bloody violence. It means that it's an emotional violent experience. I don't know anybody, and I'm not gonna have anybody raise their hands, this is all a very sensitive subject, but I don't know anybody that's been affected by divorce, that's went through it or been close to it that enjoys the process. Almost everybody would say it is universally brutal. It is painful, it is heart-wrenching, but the opposite is true. When you continue to work through things, it's a beautiful thing to continue to change from glory to glory to glory. Jesus did his first wedding, miracle at a wedding, the wedding of Cana, where he took ordinary wine, the servants did, filled up these water jars, and turned it into wine. And the master of the banquet said something interesting. He said, most people bring the good wine out and when everybody's drunk, then they bring out the cheap stuff. Now my mom was a bartender for 35 years, that's how it works, right? You give the good scotch, the first couple, taste buds are pretty much gone by the fourth drink, just keep giving it, the cheap stuff. And he said, but you've saved the best for last. And that's the way marriage is. It can be awkward or difficult up front or it can be a passionate wild ride up front. But if you hang in there, it can get better and better and better so that God saves the best for last. Even though there's transitions that go into more of an emotional, spiritual, and as the 70s and 80s come, there may be that waning of the physical dimension, but all of that's been the investment for that big bank account as you get older and the richness of that relationship. So Jesus has now just told them as they ask, well, hey, can a guy just get divorced for just any reason? Jesus' simple answer, no. As he talks about the authority of the Lord and what he wants to create within this marital conflict. So verse seven says, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a divorce, a certificate of divorce, and to put her away? Now this is the passage in Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, this was the interpretation. How do we interpret uncleanness? The liberal thought, just anything. The conservative thought and biblical right thought was sexual immorality or adultery. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. My mom, being married four times, her first three husbands all cheated on her. She had biblical grounds for divorce, as we'll talk about in a moment. But I remember my uh, second stepdad, he was out of town uh, every week and then would come home on the weekends. Then he stopped coming home on the weekends. Mom knew something was up. The three of us went up there, my brother Scotty and I and my mom. And um, she did her investigation once she got to town. She found the woman. The woman was pregnant with my stepdad's kid and he's, um, he's taking care of her. So my uh, 
stepdad had just given my mom the check for 500 bucks for the week. And she came in, and we were sitting there at the dining room table. And it was a house where all the construction workers were living, so there's like four or five framers there. And she walks in, and it was quite a, uh, it was a very colorful moment, right? When you find out your, your husband has another girl pregnant, and he's, uh, that's why he's not coming home on the weekends. So she calls him some very colorful names. My mom was the sweetest lady in the world, but she had the mouth like a sailor when she decided to engage it. And uh, then she tore up his check in his face and threw it in his face, and, and we stormed out of the house, my, uh, me and my brother in tow. We're going down the road, my mom finally calms down, half an hour down the road. And I said, well, mom, the least you could have done is kept the money. Now we're flat broke. <laughs> And she, she cracked a smile, and she said, that was pretty stupid. But she said, that's the, the only thing I could had in my hand to be able to show my absolute uh, rage that was going on. So why did Moses give a bill of divorcement? Why if God's plan from the original that we just read about, that was his plan? You see, the reason for divorce, Jesus tells us now, is in verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That was not God's plan. That was not God's design. It wasn't God's goal. But because the hardness of men's hearts, the hardness of women's hearts, gets so hard when it just gets to that place of such conflict, I always wanted to try this in a mischievous way as a pastor. I did years of counseling, premarital counseling, and to shock some couples, because couples come in when they're in love and they want to get married. I mean, they are syrupy with their ushy-gushy, lovey-dovey talk, and they're, you know, they're all over each other, and they're in the office, and you're trying to talk to them about practical things, especially if they're, they're young and they have not been married before. And I'll look at them, and one of the first things I would say to them, hey, so have you guys uh, had a fight? How, how do you co- resolve conflicts? There's a British study that said they could see if a relationship would work basically on the, the couple's ability to resolve conflicts because I promise you there's a lot of conflicts coming your way when you get married, right? Years worth of conflicts because of two selfish people that want two different things. And... But I would ask them, hey, have you, how do you resolve your conflict? And they'd look at us like, argue? Us? And they would just go into this, like, look deeply into each other's eyes, like, oh, you and I, we just don't, they don't fight. None of that stuff. I'd like, get out of here, go have a fight. I'm not talking to you again until you have a fight. And, but I often wanted to be mischievous and do this. They're sitting there. They're 21 years old or 22. They just got out of college. They're getting married and look at them and say, you know, you guys, here we are. And you guys, I can tell, are just incredibly head over heels in love with each other. But why don't we, just for the sake of efficiency, I'm going to put in my calendar the court date for your divorce in five years. (laughs) And to devastate them. Now, I never had the courage to do it because I never saw anybody secure enough to be able to handle that kind of pastoral uh, uh, joking. I, the most devastating that happened to me, I have this weird like, thing that gets twisted up. When you're, when you're a pastor, you do two special events, or th- kind of three things. You do uh, baby dedications, you do funerals, and you do weddings. But I'd have a young, people at, young couple at church, they'd say, hey, pastor, and we're going back and forth, but I mix the two words, I invert the two words, and I go, so what day's the funeral? And it would, they would look at you like somehow I just cursed the day. It was an accident. I, ne- I, meant, I meant the wedding. I didn't mean it on purpose. <laughs> but the hardness of heart, how, how can you go through that process of incredible love that you're willing to promise the world to somebody looking deeply into their eyes. And now we even talk to somebody six years later, when they talk about that ex-spouse, they're of Satan. They're of the devil. Now, they very well could be if they're you know, not a believer or not walking with the Lord or at least behaving that way. But how do you go from that, one, that extreme to the other? A hardness of heart. 
It's little things that just begin to build up and the hardening takes place in the hearts of men and women. And so this is what the Lord is wanting to say. Saying, you know what? Yeah, Moses gave a bill of divorcement, but that's not God's design. That's not God's plan. And people still get divorced today. We have divorced people here tonight. So it's not like you can't, it's not like you can't get a divorce. You, you still most certainly can but the reality is of God's plan as we're shooting for God's plan and we fall short in this whole design and all that takes place within it. And I wanna share with you just a couple of things. First of all, the, the, the fail cycle. If you wanna have the fail cycle in your relationship, um, this is the way it goes. This is how the world out here, the world without God's authority of scripture, without God's authority of design, without God's authority of the vows and the promises, that a vow is different than a contract. A vow has a spiritual component to it, that a contract's just you know, basically trying to limit my liability, but a vow is a promise before God that you're all in, you're totally vulnerable. All of these authoritative things, and yet the world out there without a Christian worldview, without biblical instruction, and without Jesus and God's word, I would be exactly in this place and even in my Christian walk with a fallen sinful nature inside of me, I can start thinking this way. You can start thinking this way as a child of God. And the fail cycle is the world just says, just you gotta find the right person. First thing that happens when somebody comes in and they wanna get a divorce, they meet with the pastor, they say, pastor, I married the wrong person. Married the wrong person. I'm like, I was there five years ago when you made those big promises. She wasn't the wrong person then, right? She was the love of your life. She's, God brought her in. She's like an angel from God. <laughs> but now she's the wrong person. So the world says, find the right person. All my expectations for happiness is placed on that person. I am disappointed when they fail to meet my large expectations. And then I have to look for another right person because I got the wrong one the first time. This is the cycle that just continues on and on. I married the wrong person. I put all of this expectation. You know what an expectation is? It is a premeditated resentment. Once you finally figure that out, some of us are frustrated in our marriages because we constantly put these expectations. The ladies are putting expectations on the men and the men are putting expectations on their wives and, and you're not living up to those expectations so there begins to be this slow burn of resentment. This slow burn that it's just, well, they're, it, ladies will say, <laughs> ladies are so adorable because in counseling, she'll say, well, he never does this, he never does that, he never does that. I said, have you ever point blank looked at him, grabbed his face, and said, would you do that? She said, no, because then it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> guys are thick. I tell girls, guys are thick. They're not going to catch on to your subtleties. You want it, you ask for it, point blank. It's a medical fact. Guys' skulls are thicker than women's. We're thick, we're slow, but girls like, it would be special if he just like mind read me. Yet it's, do you want it or not? That's the question, right? Do you, do you want it? Do you want that to happen? Yes, I want that to happen with all of my heart. Well then, speak up. Because guys can't read minds. And guys are just like, right? We don't, we're not subtle. We're, we're not the sharpest knife in the drawer to be as sensitive to these uh, emotional cues and all the hints that you're giving, we don't get them. So <laughs> the reality is that these expectations, and then when they, you miss the expectation or you're let down, you think, well, there's a person out there that actually can read my mind. There's a person out there that will actually fulfill my expectations. So I'm gonna go looking for them. And I'm just gonna trade this one in here with my old pickup truck, just trade her along with it, and then I'm gonna go find me another one. And when that one turns out to be the wrong person, and I'm just gonna go do the cycle again, go looking for the right person, because some people fall in love with the process of falling in love, you know what I mean? Like they love the six months, woohoo! After six months, this is a lot of work, I want out. Relationships take effort, and they take work. Now the best cycle, is be the right person, expect your deepest needs and fulfillment to come from the Lord, sincerely ask your spouse to forgive you for missing the mark when you drop the ball, and totally renew your commitment to love and serve your spouse. See how it's the opposite. It's not about, I, found, I married the wrong person. No, it's, you, dude, you gotta be the right person. 
No, but she, she, or he, he. You're reading somebody else's mail. That's, that's not your business. If you quote the Bible verses that God is talking to the woman or that God is talking to the man and you throw those in each other's face, you're reading the other person's mail. That is not addressed to you and it doesn't go well because I tried it. <laughs> doesn't go well. Right, so this is that best cycle or the cycle that starts blessing. That's how the hardness of heart, because what happens in the hardness of heart, as your heart hardens towards your spouse, it opens up to the other available people in the world. Right? You might work with them. Might be your neighbor. Might be a parent of your kids that's on the same soccer team. And your heart's really hard towards your spouse, and so it opens up to the world. But if your heart is soft and open to your spouse, then my heart is hard towards those invaders that would come into the relationship. So you have to like process this stuff. Otherwise, we get duped by the deceptiveness of sin that so easily comes into our own hearts and our own lives. So, but what are the reasons? What are the biblical reasons for divorce? The Bible gives three, purpose, or three reasons for divorce. Here Jesus gives us the first one. Divorce is for sexual immorality. In verse nine, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, if there's been no sexual unfaithfulness and you get divorced, whoever you marry next will be the issue of adultery. You get that? So you say, wait a second. My spouse and I, we got a divorce 11 years ago. Neither one of us had been unfaithful. Then after the divorce, we got married to other people. Do you, are you saying that I committed adultery? Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. Another way to say it is to say, you know what? You missed the mark for the plan that God had, right? You missed the mark. Now, you and I miss the mark daily, so I don't want to overemphasize this, but I also don't want to minimize it. Hey, we missed the mark. You just missed the mark. I'm, I am very skillful at constantly repenting for my, missing the mark in my life. How about you? Right? My thoughts, my words, my actions. It's like, Jesus, help me. What a mess. <laughs> I need your help every day. And it's that way in, in marriage also. And so I have to apologize to Tammy when I behave poorly. We'll just leave it at that. But the other two situations of divorce, the next one is separation. When two believers are married and they say, you know what, I just can't, I can't stand each other anymore. Roger and his wife, this couple years ago, 25 years ago, even longer, both, it was amazing to me because they both loved Jesus so much. They were in church every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning. They were just, they were raising their kids in the ways of the Lord, but they literally could not figure out how to make marriage work, and so they got divorced. So this is that situation. Two Christians, you know what the Bible says, you love the Lord, and it says in 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle teaches us this. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart. The plan is, what is, what is the target? Not to leave, not to divorce. But if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So, two Christians, they know the Lord, they get divorced, and they go, can't take it anymore. I want peace. So they separate. So now, say that divorce happens and they're both, say, 30 years old. The majority of people are wired. It is, marriage is the rule. We're gonna talk about singleness in a moment. Singleness is the exception. Marriage is the rule. How, how many of you are married to, tonight? And just keep your hand up. How many of you wanna be married that are not yet married? Okay, we still have some single people, right? You wanna get married. We should have done that a little better. I could have said, hey, look around the room just for a moment, right? Good play. <laughs> I apologize. I'm lousy at matchmaking. I never get involved in it whatsoever. So now you have two married people, but I look at them when they tell me they're gonna go through the divorce and I share with this passage. I said, okay, you're both Christians. You, you know the Lord. 
And so now you're telling me at the age of 30, you're now gonna remain single for the rest. Oh yes, we love Jesus. This is what his word says. That's what we're gonna do. I'm like, yeah, it's not gonna happen. Because you're wired for marriage, right? You're gonna go whatever the next relationship is. It's, It's coming, it's coming. This Roger and his wife, these two, it became the most, it was the bane of my existence for about eight months. He was stalking her because she started their divorce. So she starts dating. And so he would hide outside of her house in the vehicle to see what time she went home and then report to me. I'm like, I don't want to know this stuff that's going on. Because for them, this is the weird thing. For them, it became a waiting game to see who was going to sin. So you see, when the one person sins sexually, the other person is the innocent victim. If a spouse is unfaithful, the spouse that goes through with the divorce is innocent in the matter. There is no sin on their part. They have a righteous divorce. Now, even saying that, God always wants us to try to redeem things and to come back into the relationship. So many marriages have been healed through infidelity by grace and forgiveness to have a restored relationship. So that's the goal, is redemption. But when that can't happen, and you have the keys, the offended spouse that are innocent, they can do a righteous divorce. So this couple, they went back and forth, back and forth, and they're just waiting for the other one to, so that they're the, the culprit. I'm like, it became like childish. I'm like, are we on the playground? Are we three, in third grade? This is ridiculous. But that's what, what happens in this situation. Now, there are some people they get married, and they do have a gift to remain single. Like they, it was such hell for seven years. They're never walking down the altar or to the altar ever again, as far as long as they live. So the second situation is believer separation, and, and to remain that way or to be reconciled to each other. And we also had through the years of our ministry, I had many situations of reconciliation. You know, a, a lady was coming to the church and her husband started stalking her at the church, right? He started, came to church. They both got radically committed to Jesus. They fell back in love and I did the vows and, and, and they got, you know, they're married to this day and, and God just totally changed their life from the brokenness of their divorce. The third is a believer's abandonment by an unbeliever. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 through 15, but to the rest, uh, I, not the Lord, say. And by that he is not disclaiming as some try to say that he's, disc- he's uh, disclaiming the anointing of the authority of, of this as, as being scripture. No, no, he's just saying, he said in the previous one, the Lord has said about sexual immorality. He says, the Lord, not I, say, which we just talked about, the people that are separated. But in this case, he says, not the Lord, I say, What he's saying is there had been no biblical precedent for the church being born in this unequally yoked situation. So now Paul the Apostle unpacks it for us and teaches us about it. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if the unbeliever departs, You're not under bondage in this covenant any longer because God's called us to peace. So knowing this verse, some spouses that are believers try to drive the unbeliever out of the house when they're literally, I mean, I've seen it happen. It's it's crazy. And I'm like, no, the Lord said, if they're willing to live with you, they want to be married to you, even though you're a believer, you should do your best. You should do your best to make this work. And, you know, there are unbelievers, no doubt there's somebody here tonight that is married and you love the Lord and your spouse does not. And you've been able to make it work for years. I mean, it's it's not ideal. You wish that there was more in the spiritual category, but some people figure out how to navigate it and make it work. But if that unbeliever said, you know, I hate Jesus, I hate the word of God, I hate your, 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 the church life that you have, I'm out of here, and they want to divorce you for your faith, then it's like, okay, let them go. But as long as they're living with you, Jesus says, 
They are sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for a special situation. That God has in his crosshairs to save the soul of your unbelieving spouse, and that is the work of sanctification because you're his child, and in this relationship, the Lord is ministering in your life, and so the children are affected by your faith, and the husband is affected by the, your faith, and you don't know. They may, got, may get saved as you're praying for them through the years. Gordon, who was my assistant for 20 years or so, he, him and his wife were married for, I think, about 11 years or so, and he was an unbeliever, and she was a believer, and she was praying for him, and, and she'd finally given up. She was going to just divorce him, and I've had it, and uh, basically, um, she was at a women's Bible study, and she had never heard the verse that the Lord hates divorce, and so this w- older woman shared with her and ministered to her, and she was really challenged by that. She was like, oh, maybe I should continue to pray for Gordon. And so she did. But Gordon, is, uh, he, he keeps his, uh, plays his cards really close to his chest. So he got saved. He didn't tell her for like two years that he was even saved. He just kind of, you know, he's loving Jesus on the inside, but he's not, he's not giving her the satisfaction to know <laughs> that he had come to Christ. He's mischievous that way. But in that process, that, that abandonment can happen, and that's painful, Right? To be separated, and you don't want to be reconciled to each other, or you can be reconciled if God brings healing, or to remain that way for the rest of your life, or the unbeliever leaves. Now, these are the three biblical examples of divorce. And I know pastors, I know other Christians, they, they, they tell me when I share with them, they're, they're, they'll say, there's, there's one example of a biblical divorce. That's not true. There are three and they'll say, yeah, but I know if I, if, I, if I share with them these other two, they might take, open the door and run with it. That's not your job. Your job is to be a man of God that declares the word of God, and it's their job to choose obedience or disobedience. That's not on me. If I share with you God's perfect plan and you go, I'm going to go do my own thing, that's not on me. That's on you, right? I can't be obedient for you, and you can't be obedient for me. So it is a a minister's life. It is a child of God's job to declare this is what the word of God says. Now you have the responsibility and you have the accountability now that you know for you to respond according to your love for the Lord and your desire for obedience or your choice to be disobedient. It's on you. Now having heard this, this is the mind-blowing thing. We're going from the marriage ministry to the divorce ministry now to the singles ministry because the guys say in verse 10, his disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If I just can't get out of this thing anytime I want, are you crazy? Yet all the disciples were already married and they're saying, this is not a good plan. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. The disciples are blown away at Jesus' strong teaching on marriage. Maybe you're blown away at Jesus' strong teaching on marriage. And you go, pfft. If I'd have known this before, I'd have never got hooked up. I'd have never got married. Well, that's the disciples are feeling that right now. Like, uh, I think it'd be better to stay single. And Jesus said, well, you know, that's, that's, another, that's another bucket of problems. Did you realize the single person has a bucket of problems? And the married person has a bucket of problems. And so oftentimes they just exchange buckets of problems. The single person's going through life so lonely. He's like, oh, I know my life is going to be so perfect when I get married. All the married people say, what did you just say? (laughs) Right? Because there's different challenges. And so what they're doing is they're trading this challenge of loneliness for another challenge of two wills with their selfish desires banging against each other for the rest of their life. They're two different buckets of problems. You're going to have a bucket of problems in a fallen world because you're a fallen creature. And I'm a fallen creature. And then the married people, they get married and they go, oh, when the two of us can just have children, our life's going to be perfect. What would you just say? <laughs> now you can have some kids that are adding to the excitement. Now, first of all, I'm a happily married man, and I totally love my wife, and I love my children with all my heart. But life is a fallen world, right? And you have challenges. Don't think that nobody gets a free pass. 
The preacher doesn't get a free pass with his white picket fence and no struggles, right? So nobody gets a free pass. All of us have to, this is the reality. If you want to make a marriage work, somebody's got to die. Now, it doesn't mean kill the spouse. It means you got to die to yourself. This lady said that she had been married like 40 years. And we were talking about, uh, hey, let's, we're going to do this marriage conference. What, was, what theme should we give it? And she just said after 40 years of marriage, somebody's got to die. <laughs> and I said, I don't think anybody will come, but it sounds great to me. I totally get it. It's not real catchy. It's not going to pull you in. Somebody's got to die. That's why people, they kill their spouses. But the thing that needs to die is my own selfishness, my own pride. And it's there to greet me every morning, my selfishness and my pride. It's like, hello, Rick. We've been waiting for eight hours for you to get up just to harass your life. We really want to torture you today, and maybe you could be an absolute jerk to Tammy today and ruin the next three weeks of your life. Let's do that today. It's like, because the big dose of humble pie we read back in Matthew chapter 15, that all these things come from our heart. It all comes from my heart. My fallen nature. Now, Jesus gave three examples of divorce. I mean, uh, Paul and Jesus together. He gives now three examples of single people. Let me just ask you, do you have the gift of singleness? And we won't have any show of hands, because as soon as you say, yes, I have the gift of singleness, somebody's gonna come sweep you off your feet in a month, and we'll call you liar, liar, pants on fire. But... He says, some people are born that way from their mother's womb. Some people are born with no, I mean, very low uh, sexual desire. They're totally fine just being single, right? But they are the exception. They are not the rule. The rule is marriage. Not, I not, and I don't mean that you have to get married. I'm simply saying that most people biologically want to get married, okay? So it's, I've met just a handful. In all my years of walking with Jesus, I've only met a handful of people that's they have the gift of singleness. They're like, don't, don't want a man, or they don't want a woman, uh, depending on you know, if it's male or female. And then he says that there were eunuchs that had, back in that day, they would actually castrate men to be eunuchs. Like if they, they wanted a man to watch over the women, they would castrate him, because that'll stop any kind of infidelity right there, right? Just, he's a steer, he's not a bull any longer, nothing works, okay? Thirdly, there are those who make a choice. For the kingdom of God's sake, I'm going to die to this desire to have a relationship with a spouse so I can serve God without distraction. That's a choice of the heart, empowered by the Spirit, a gift from God, that they're able to do that. Because Paul the Apostle tells us, as Paul strongly argued for all of us to stay single. Paul the Apostle argued strongly, if you can do it, he's like, be single, and I'll tell you why. But he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, 9. But I say to the unmarried, if you're unmarried, and to the widows. Back in that day, death was so common, you would have so many young widows, or young widowers, either one. It is good for them if they remain as even as I am, which means single. But if they cannot exercise self-control sexually, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So some people say, I don't want the hassles of a relationship, but I have this sexual drive. You are created as a sexual creature. And we live in a sex-saturated culture. But even without the sex-saturated culture, you just, you're wired for sexuality. It's biological. And Paul the Apostle says, if you can remain single to serve God, he says, I think that's better. But if you lack self-control and you cannot as Paul the Apostle tells the, um, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, this is God's will, even your sanctification, which he talks about being able to take care of your own vessel sexually, that you are staying pure before the Lord. So, if you're unable to remain single and sexually pure, then it's best for you to be praying. Some of you need to be fasting and praying to find your spouse, right? So that you will have a healthy, God-blessed, God-ordained, beautiful thing to be fruitful and multiply. And you go, well, be fruitful and multiply. I'm through menopause. Well, at least you can still practice to be fruitful and multiply, right? You, you don't, 
you know, it's not all about reproduction. Otherwise, God would not have designed the body sensitivity to be able to experience what it experiences. It's for enjoyment. It's for pleasure between a man and a woman. Paul goes on to say, in verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And then he says the same thing in reverse about the wife, that she, you know, she's worried about pleasing her husband. And that's true, right? When I'm serving God, the day you get married, you start thinking, oh, I mean, I was going to do this, but I wonder what my wife will think about that. Oh, we're going to do this. Oh, but, you know, she has these plans. I mean, everything now becomes uh, more congested like a busy highway with the ability to make decisions. So Paul the Apostle said, single people, they just get, you know what? You wanna go on a mission trip in five days and just drop everything and go, go. If you're married, I mean, that might be a seven month conversation. Let's, let's pray about it. Because you, you know, opposites attract. So you have one that's super spontaneous and the other one is you know, a money manager and we've got a plan, we've got a plan, we've got a plan, right? We've got to save, we've got to save. We have these goals. We're going to raise, you know, that's our college fund. Honey, we don't even have kids yet, but it's okay. We're going to have a college fund for our children. And all those things are great. You need that because between the two, you usually get a healthy balance, right? Mr. Spontaneity meets Mrs. Bookkeeper, and it's usually a lot of fireworks. It's very exciting. <laughs> Super exciting. But this is why Paul says, in his shortest statement he could possibly make, if you are single, Paul's strongest admonition is that nevertheless, in verse 28, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. <laughs> What's he mean by that? Whoever gets married is gonna have trouble. <laughs> and he wants to spare you. He wants to spare you the drama of marriage. And can we just get a, a, a amen from all of us married people? There's times that we just have trouble. Amen? Okay, all right. Sometimes I, the way you guys are looking at me, I'm thinking, I don't know if they're really on the same page with me. Maybe they're not fallen people like me. Maybe they have beautiful, perfect uh, relationships and they're not resonating with any of this. Maybe you just don't want to speak too loudly to give yourself away. I don't know. But we live in a real world, redeemed by grace, walking with God, but still we have the flesh and the struggles of our own soul. So having said all that, I, I want to share with you some closing thoughts, because I talked about the marriage ministry, the divorce ministry, the singles ministry, but we've got to talk about the grace ministry right now, because some of you are here, and you know, you're on your third marriage, and you're like, oh, junk, I've, I'm, not, you know, I'm this adulterer because I went from you know, marriage to marriage, and, and, and now what do I do? And people start, they start wanting to untangle the spaghetti. Like, I've met people that are on their fourth marriage and they go, now what do I do because what this is, should I go back to the first one and say she wants to make up? I said, no dude, a lot of water's been under the bridge, you know, 25 years ago. I don't think she's gonna want you showing up on her doorstep. That's not what we're talking about. But the grace ministry is so important, not only you guys for missing the mark in divorce, but for missing the mark in any area of your life. The God you serve is a gracious God he tells us he knows that our frame is but dust. He knows we're dust. He knows that we fall short. And to minister some grace to your hearts and to put some salve over the wounds that these scars and the trouble and challenges and difficulties that come with these relational conflicts, Isaiah 1:18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Micah 7 says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. I love this. And you, shall, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that awesome? God's grace for us. And it doesn't matter how you failed this week. You say, well, you know, it's not in the divorce category, but there's other things you struggle with. We need constant reminder about God's grace. But as we close with this thought, I shared with you the, the cycle, if you will, the uh, fail cycle, the best cycle, but this is the save cycle for you if you're in that situation and you're in your second marriage, you're in your third marriage. Maybe, maybe you're going for a triple-double. I don't know what you're going for. <laughs> 
but maybe you're like the woman at the well. She had five marriages, and now she's living with a guy. But the save cycle looks like this, where you're at right now. Seek the Lord's forgiveness for missing the mark for your marital failures. Maybe that just means even getting in an argument on the way to church tonight. Isn't it weird how the devil shows up every Saturday night and every Sunday morning? It's just like he totally left us alone. I mean, you want to get the wife and kids together and bring them to church on a Sunday morning? It's like it feels like just chaos just broke out in your, your world. I mean, they got, you got coyotes dragging your children out of the front yard. We got things breaking down. We have all kinds of chaos. But the reality is, seek the Lord's forgiveness for missing the mark for your marital failures. Lord, please forgive me. Accept your new reality with all of its difficulties with God's help. The reality in a divorced person's life, maybe it's very fresh to you. There's challenges with the kids, if you have kids, and, and, and visitation, and it just seems to go on. I mean, even 20 years from now, when they're, your kids are getting married, and you're there with that old spouse, and my, my wife, and so May 17th, 1986, my wife and I get married. And my mom and dad hadn't seen each other for a decade. And they're, they're right behind us. You know, they're in the wedding party. They're, they're standing. We're, we're doing these um, photos and things. And they start at each other. It's just like old times. Like, I mean, all these years have went by. And I, it was the first turn. I looked around at my mom and dad. And I said, you two, shut up. Knock it off and be good because this is our day. You had your day. This is not your day. And they were rolling. <laughs> they both looked at each other like, because I'm the youngest of four. So they're like, our baby boy just told us off. I guess we're going to shut up here in this moment. V, value your present relationship with God's, with God's help to make it the best. What relationship, what, the relationship you're in right now, make it the best you can. Right? There's no reason to... Regrets are a waste of energy. Paul the Apostle said, forgetting this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to that upward call that is in Christ Jesus. Regret drains your emotional energy to be effective today. And that's what the devil loves to just bang on you and condemn you with. So just value where you're at. Make, the, make your situation now the best you possibly can. And lastly, eagerly pursue this new season of grace with total confidence in the Lord that he's in your corner. Jesus died and shed his blood to cover our sins. And our sins are many. And oftentimes, even many in relationships. And they've affected previous spouses. They've affected our children, sometimes our grandchildren. The swath of devastation oftentimes can be far and wide. But you, in Jesus' grace, and the blood of Jesus washing over you in this new season, you can go to bed tonight at total peace. You can wake up in the morning absolutely confident that God has good things in store for you because he loves you. He's got a plan for you. He's going to work in your life. It's not over. It's like, oh, now I'm chopped liver. I'm, you know, got the big D on my forehead. That's not true. You're a new creation in Christ. And that goes for every day, every single day. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your kindness. Pray that you would, I pray especially that you would minister to the, the hearts that are, are reeling in the aftermath and the wake and the pain of divorce. And it is painful, Lord. I pray for your comfort, your healing, and your love to be extended to them. I pray for those who, Lord, right now are in the throes of the struggles and the temptations and their heart is hardening. I pray that you would soften their hearts tonight, Lord, that they wouldn't have a heart of stone. You tell us that your word is like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. Lord, may your word accomplish its purposes to break the hardness of heart in those hearts tonight, that they would turn and soften towards their spouse and harden against those outside forces that would seek to invade the sanctuary of their marriage. So Lord, we pray for your kindness to meet us in a unique way here tonight for each and every heart and each and every soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing this closing song.
want to encourage you. The prayer team is going to be down here. They'd love to pray for you. You know, we started the first two verses. Jesus was ministering and he was healing the people. Maybe you need a touch of healing in your marriage. Maybe you just, a husband and wife, you're struggling. You want to come up and just have them lay hands on you, pray for you, that God's spirit would do a fresh work in your life. Maybe you're in the aftermath as I prayed, just from, you know, some relationship failing. God loves you. God is, he hasn't given up on you. And you're not labeled as some second-class citizen because a, a, a relationship failed. God's mercies are new every morning. Let's worship. See the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now I worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 whoa. When that day draws near, when my dark. I will keep my heart seeking.